Welcome to the Witches and Wine audio experience. said you know when i was a teenager and i was just like he got into anime that's why he no was no 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 that's true a lot of the people who study japanese even when i was an undergraduate my japanese teacher she would ask them so why are you studying japanese do you like anime and manga and i said i like buddhism <laughs> hello everybody chawan here i'm so pleased to be speaking to jeffrey kodak hi jeffrey Hi, thanks for having me on the show. Can you explain how a guy from Canada decides, oh, I'm going to study Asia for like half my life? Well, it's a long story, but it begins when I was a teenager and I was interested in martial arts. And then I decided, you know, I'm going to take a look at Japanese. And so then I switched my major as an undergraduate from Greek and Roman classics to Japanese. And then I got the opportunity to study in Japan for one year at uh, Kokugakuin University in Tokyo. And then for my master's degree, I got a Japanese government scholarship to study at uh, Komazawa University, which is actually a Zen Buddhist university. Now, when I say Zen Buddhist, you think people are doing Zazen there every day. No, it's kind of like going to a Catholic university where there's a department of Buddhist studies. Mm. In between my master's and my PhD, I also went to Taiwan and India, and I spent two years in India, and I ordained as a Buddhist monk. I spent a year and a half in uh, Taiwan working as a translator for a Buddhist organization, so I read Chinese and Japanese. And then when was it? In 2014, I started the PhD through Leiden University in the Netherlands, and my PhD project was about basically the Buddhist practice of astrology in medieval China and Japan. The other aspect to my research was astral magic. Now, astral magic is basically magic that is performed either toward the astral deities, like, you know, the planets are conceived of as deities, or it's magic that's performed according to an astrological schedule. And so, or it's, it's both of them combined. And this sort of astral magic was very popular with Chinese Buddhists as well as Japanese Buddhists and also Taoists in medieval China. And medieval China, I'm talking about 8th century till about the 14th century. And then also some of my recent research, I looked at a little bit later, the practice of horoscopy in China in the 16th century. And I have a paper that will be coming out in a few months and it compares a 16th century Chinese astrologer, his work, um, comparing it to that of William Lilly, who was uh, early 17th century. From the papers that you have available that anybody can download and read, it seems as though China had its own thing for a long time. Yeah. And then astrology came in from the West through Persia, through India. 
And this is what I don't think a lot of people realize. It's that China had a completely different system beforehand. China had its own indigenous form of uh, celestial omenology or astrology. The only person, individual, it was concerned with was the emperor himself. Um, How come only the emperor could get his fortune done? Because it deals primarily with the interests of the empire or the state. So it's omenology, kind of like what you had in Babylonia, where they would see omens in the sky and then they would relate to re- relate it to matters of state and the environment and the rivers and earthquakes and so on. So it wasn't something that an individual could make use of, basically. Wow. Whereas horoscopy is, you can calibrate it to the individual's interests because we have your birth date, your birth hour, we can create your nativity chart, and then from there we can... Uh, you know, read your fate, we can try to analyze your fate. Whereas in China, the original form of astrology in China, it was concerned with state interests. And it was it was also a government operation and it was classified information actually. We don't really think of astrology as, you know, potentially um, you know, dangerous to state interests, but it was because if you were trying to steal the throne from the emperor, then you could read omens in the sky and use that as a propaganda strategy against the current emperor. And in history in China, people actually did that. So when there was, you know, inauspicious signs in the sky, they would uh, read that as a, as a as a warning that the present imperial family was doomed or they had lost the mandate of heaven. Why is that important that he has like this, you know, like heavenly sort of permission? The Son of Heaven, which was the title that the emperors took, uh, was effectively a intermediary, and he would perform rituals sacrificing to heaven and earth. So he was the intermediary between heaven and earth. And he had the right to reign over all the lands. And so it was a ritual function as well that the emperor played. It wasn't just political. We usually don't think of um, Confucianism in religious terms, but the rituals that they performed it was meant to sort of solidify this tie between heaven and earth, and the intermediary was the son of heaven, which was the emperor. And if the emperor wasn't doing a satisfactory job, maybe he wasn't tyrannical, he wasn't respecting um, heaven, he wasn't respecting earth, then signs of, uh, of heaven's displeasure would appear in the sky as well as in the land. So there would be maybe, you know, abnormal birth defects or there would be inauspicious signs in the environment. There would be an earthquake. Um, Comets were really seen often as inauspicious. So if you lost the mandate of heaven, it was transferred to another person. And so the succeeding emperor from another family would establish a new dynasty and then claim the mandate of heaven as his own. And then that would pass down to his sons. I'm sure everybody has seen the archaeological digs of, what was it like, all those like terracotta soldiers. Yeah, the terracotta warriors. That's from the first emperor of China. So Qin, the Qin emperor, he was the first uh, man to unify all of China. So before that, that's like before the third century BCE. So that's like around the Roman Republic. China was just a, a fractured realm of multiple kingdoms. And then what happened was uh, the Qin emperor, he managed to unify all of them under one banner, under one country. And then his regime only lasted a couple decades, and then that was replaced by the Han Dynasty, which lasted about four centuries, around the same time as the Roman Empire. So, And then you had trade links also between China and the Roman Empire. They knew about each other. They didn't know so much about each other, but there, there were also um, diplomats sent, I think, under Marcus Aurelius's time to China. But then you also had the Persians in between them, so the Parthians. 
as the sort of uh, in-between country. So the Parthians probably had more contacts with the Chinese than the Romans did, but they, everybody kind of knew each other. And there was also the Silk Road developing at this time. So the Chinese silk would be, would be sent overland, so through the caravans, and it would pass through multiple hands, and then it would eventually end up in a place like Alexandria or Jerusalem. And then they would sell this silk for lots and lots of money in, in Rome. Guys, China has an amazing, amazing civilization that goes back longer than you can imagine. The world right. is bigger than just Europe. Right. So China has this amazing civilization and it has its own uh, calendar, its own like Chinese New Year. It's always different from our Western New Year. Mm -hmm. It's like that. They have a lunar calendar. By the way, I have a lunar birthday. That's my official birthday, like on all my documents. So in Korea, you can choose to have your lunar or your Western calendar birthday. You have to choose, of course, but officially, according to all of, my, including my American documents, I'm an Aquarius, but in reality, you know, according to the sun, I'm mm -hmm. Pisces. So, you know, it's still affecting Asia today. So China's doing its own thing. Uh, what was its astrological calendar system like back before the West started to really come in? As you said, it was its own unique calendar. So the months were calculated usually 30 days per month. And then it has to be calibrated so that it follows the solar cycle. So every couple of years, you have to add an intercalary month. So that you get a 13th month every couple of years. Yeah. And uh, that, that keeps the, month, the months in sync with the seasons as well. So uh, if, if you don't do that, then you end up with, you know, the, the months becoming divorced from the seasons. And then that just leads to confusion. So, yeah, and, and then they also had uh, their own sort of scientific system of astronomy. So the Chinese, they have constellations, but they're not the zodiac signs. They're not Sagittarius and Libra. They have their own set of indigenous constellations. So when the Chinese, ancient Chinese looked up at the sky, you know, they didn't see Orion's belt. They saw other constellations. And then they also have a system of lunar mansions. If you were to track the, the movement of the moon over the course of a month, you'd say you'd see that generally the moon goes around the ecliptic approximately every 28 days. So you could come up with 28 lunar stations. So there's 28 lunar mansions in China, but these are not the same as the lunar stations in India. So the Indians also developed on their own without foreign influence, this model of 28 lunar stations. But the stars that define the Indian lunar stations and the stars that define the Chinese lunar stations are completely different. And so they had their own indigenous ideas. And then over the centuries, um, especially starting around the 8th century, they started getting some Indian ideas because they translated some Indian astronomical and calendrical science into Chinese. And then from there, also because of foreign astrology, primarily Indian and Persian, they also came up with some ideas of, uh, you know, having... Um, astrological predictions on the basis of your lunar mansion. So you, you would ask somebody, so when were you born? And you would find out which lunar mansion they were born under. And then you would make predictions about that person's personality, their life, their fortunes, and so forth, just based on the lunar station. And then if you could find out the hour that they were born, so this is again starting around the year 800, they would be able to create an actual natal chart, a nativity. And they did this without calculators. They did this without um, the benefit of computers. So they had to do all of this by hand. But when you have tables, ephemerides, so when you have the tables, it becomes a bit easier to do this. 
Then you have the practice of Chinese horoscope. We started around the year 800. And then it really takes off. A lot of aristocrats are very much interested in this. Some Chinese poets even include some of these horoscopic astrological ideas in their poetry. You know, they lament that, oh, I was born under this constellation. It's given me nothing but trouble over the years. And then it was really popular even in the 16th century when the Europeans start showing up in China. And actually the Jesuits, those are the Catholic missionaries who show up around the year uh, 1600 in the early 17th century. They actually took notice of this and they started introducing um, some Western astronomical ideas at that point. And they also translated a bit of horoscopy in the early 17th century as well, mostly based on the material of Claudius Ptolemy, the Tetrabiblos and, and that sort of uh, literature. So there's a very, very long history and the history of calendrical science and astronomy in China is very, very complex because there's the original native ideas then there's foreign ideas that are translated from Indian and Persian sources over the centuries and then Islamic sources and then European sources. So it's a whole field onto itself. And mm -hmm. then Buddhism starts to come in. Buddha, he basically changed not only the course of religious history in that area, but it seems as though a lot of the esoteric practices, like the magic as well. So that, that's especially starting around the 8th century or so. So Buddhism is introduced into China, well, at the earliest in the 1st or 2nd century Common Era. So again, that's about the same time as the, the Roman Empire is flourishing. And so Buddhism along the Silk Road, along the sea routes, it enters China. And then from China, it goes on over to Korea and then Japan later on. And then all of East Asia becomes very heavily Buddhist, right? So, yeah, Buddhism played an enorm enormous role in uh, creating medieval East Asian culture. And to this day, it's still yeah. politically, culturally, and uh, in terms of education as well, it's very influential. We have this idea of karma in Buddhism. So your actions in this lifetime and also your actions in past lifetimes will influence your fate, your destiny, what you will experience. And so the, the essential idea is that if you, if you carry out negative actions, if you hurt people, if you kill things, then the repercussions of that will come out as suffering and disappointment and sorrow. But conversely, if you do good deeds, then you gain merit. And then the result of that is happiness, fortune, joy, and so on. But then if that's the case, where does astrology fit in? Because there's a certain amount of determinism in astrology, because astrology suggests that your fate is signaled or determined by the stars, especially at the time of your birth. But then one way that a Buddhist uh, translator, his name was Amogavadra in the 8th century, the way he got around this was he suggested that if you're born under bad stars, that's to say that if you have a bad horoscope, then that's probably an indication that you had bad karma coming to fruition. So you're sort of locked into your karma at birth, and that means that you can't change it. But in the same way, like if you're born, for example, without eyes, then the Buddhists would say that, well, then you probably had some sort of bad karma that came to fruition, and that's why you don't have eyes. You can't change that in this lifetime. That's locked in for life. But then with the magical component, the way you can sort of mitigate the, the worst of these influences is through the practice of astral magic. And this is something that, you know, the esoteric Buddhists would practice. So esoteric Buddhism, if you know anything about Shingon and Kukai, these were um, traditions that practiced not just, you know, Buddhist rituals for the purposes of liberation and attaining nirvana, 
but also they practiced astral magic. Now it's it's it becomes a very complex uh, art. If you have, for example, um, a bad natal chart, or you have a planet such as like a malefic planet such as Mars or Saturn that's transiting through a very important part on your chart. For example, your first house, right? If it's transiting through your first house, you might predict that something bad will happen. You might become ill, you might experience misfortune, you might lose money, family members might get sick and perish. So there's all sorts of, you know, unwanted, undesirable things that could occur. So the way that you deal with this is you petition the planet that is transiting through that critical part of your nativity and then you carry out rituals that are prescribed. And you find the same sort of magic also in the West. And that Western magic ultimately comes from Islamic sources, such as the Picatrix, which is the Latin translation of the Gayat al-Hakim. So a lot of people who are into the occult know what the Picatrix is. And so the Picatrix translated 13th century into Latin, but the original text is, comes from around the year 1000, written in Arabic. And then a lot of that magic also just comes from the Near East, so Syriac, Egyptian, Persian sources. And the same sort of magic was also transmitted with horoscopy from Persia into China around the year 800. And this kind of magic, again, you have to do, you have to carry out the rituals according to the prescription. So if you are petitioning Saturn, then you have to use the proper incense. And the proper incense of Saturn is Styrax, otherwise called Storax. And you also have to produce an image of Saturn. And then in East Asia, Saturn is always depicted as an old man. He has a beard. He is usually holding a staff, and then he's also hunched over because he's an old man, and he's usually associated with a bull. So he's either riding a bull, or he has a bull, bull's head as a cap on his head. And so you have the ritual icon, and then you have the Styrax incense, and then you're supposed to also make other offerings that are appropriate to Saturn. So foods with the flavors like bitter flavors, sour flavors, fermented flavors, these sort of things. And then you do this as a way of negotiating your fate, or mitigating the worst of the influences that could come upon you when this is happening. And you're also supposed to observe this for the entire duration of the transit. So in one text that I've studied, it says you're supposed to observe this transit for, I think it's three years. So that's about the time it takes for Saturn to transit a whole zodiac sign from its entry to its exit. So it's, it becomes like a very complex ritual form, and it's something you're supposed to do long term. But that same sort of magic you see also in the West and in the Middle East. And, but, then that, but then in the Middle East and in Europe, you have the talismans. So you need to produce either an amulet or a ring, and you have to produce it according to specifications with proper recipe of herbs, and then do it at the right exact time. And, but that sort of talisman magic, I haven't seen in East Asia. But in East Asia, what you find is petitioning the planets when they're um, going to do something negative to you. And so there was this whole, I guess, profession of professional astrologers in China as well as Japan. In Japan, it was the astrologer monks who carried out this profession. What they would do is they would look at your horoscope. And we actually do have a horoscope from the uh, uh, 12th century where it explains this the client's fortune. And the client was actually a Buddhist, another Buddhist monk at Koyasan. So that's the headquarters of Shingon. 
And it says, well, your disciples will be like this, your fortunes will be like this, your health is going to be like this. But then it also carefully describes which planets are going to cause you problems and what you should do. So it says that you should petition them, make offerings. And so that's saying that you should practice these you know, magical rituals in order to mitigate the negative influences. And you still have people to, to this day who, who practice this sort of um, magic in Japan at the big temples, at the Tendai, at Shingon. And then another thing that developed in Japan, which is very interesting, is the practice of star mandalas. So if you know what a mandala is, it's usually either a circular or rectangular image, and in the center is a Buddha, and then surrounding that Buddha are various other divine figures and deities. And it's, it's really fascinating because they have these unique Japanese star mandalas that you don't find elsewhere in East Asia, where you have a Buddha figure in the middle, and then it's surrounded by planets in anthropomorphic forms, as well as the lunar mansions, as well as the um, seven stars of the Big Dipper. The seven stars of the Big Dipper, that's actually originally a Taoist concept. And they, they govern longevity, so your lifespan. So you have these indigenous Chinese ideas also coming into this. And then the star mandalas, they would, and into this day too, every, every year, on a specific day, the temples hang them up and they do a ritual in order to, you know, placate the planets and to sort of produce a good, healthy relationship with the stars. So again, these traditions are still alive to this day in East Asia. So before the Indian astrology started to come into China, mm -hmm. did they have the concept of, oh, we see seven planets in the sky and they, they're deities or they have their own sort of like backstory or... Was it the Chi Chi Chinese civilization, they were very much interested in the seven stars of the Big Dipper because they don't set. So there's a sort of, and it's also the, the tail of the Big Dipper. It also, you know, predictably um, rotates. And also you can, um, I guess, because it's also, um, in ca it's calibrated to the, the pole star as well. The two stars at the end of the Dipper are the pointer stars. Draw a line through these stars, and it will point at Polaris. Compressing time, we can see that all stars appear to rotate around Polaris. And so the pole star is also seen as the center of the cosmos in Chinese cosmology. So there's, there's, there's I guess, an auspicious link there as well. And then you'd be instructed to... Um, make offerings to that specific star, one of the seven stars, based on your birthday. And that is supposed to help with um, increasing longevity. So again, this is a Taoist, it's more of a Taoist practice, um, but the Buddhists started practicing this as well in China. And then that carried on over into Japan and probably also Korea. I think probably for sure for Korea as well. You mentioned the 28 lunar stations that China was doing before yeah. Indian astrology came in. Uh, so. In one of your papers, uh, you have like that chart. Yeah. And okay, this is a thing that I always find like when I used to be like hardcore atheist and like very skeptical about all mm -hmm. of this stuff. I was just like, well, let's say that I was born at, and I'm just making this up, this lunar station called, you know, like Fabulosity, right? Mm -hmm. And then like 28 days later, somebody's born on that same day. Mm -hmm. But um, obviously, not everybody born on that lunar station of Fabulosity is going to be like me. So mm -hmm. how can it, you know, like, what do the Chinese say about, like, why people are so diverse if they're supposed to, you know, all lunar stations are supposed to tell you who you are? That was one of the common criticisms of astrology. Even in India, you have people who criticize astrologers based on that point, that you have two people who are born on the same day at the same time, but they have different lives. And that's a classical 
criticism of astrology in the West as well. But you also in Buddhist in one Buddhist text, it even says, but you have two beings which are separate species. They're born on the same day, but they have completely different fates. And it even says like, you know, you have a preta, which is a hungry ghost. It's sort of like this ghoul, ghoulish spirit that, um, you know, you can be reborn as if you have negative karma. So a preta is born on the same day as a human being, but they experience samsara, cyclic existence and material life completely differently. So what what's up with that? And I guess the response to that would probably from a more mature Indian astrological point of view is it's not just the lunar stations that matters, but also the configuration of the planets, as well as the exact time, the second, the minute. But then they would also say it's also karma because astrology doesn't predict everything. They would say it's also your past life karma combined with the stars that you're born under. So it becomes like not completely deterministic. And also like astrology itself isn't completely deterministic anyway, because we have electional astrology. So if everything was predetermined, it wouldn't matter whether you're going to start your business on this day or that day. It would all be the same. The outcome would be the same. Nevertheless, if you have the same horoscope as somebody else, we also have to deal with your, your karma. Also, your, your actions and decisions in this lifetime will manufacture your future. And same time, too, in the Buddhist cosmology, you always have to think back to past lives. So in Buddhism, past lives are everything. It determines so much of what you experience in this lifetime. Maybe also if they just looked at their chart and they were kind of unwilling to just accept that, you know, this life, I'm going to have a shitty life because of bad karma. Maybe they want to work off that karma faster. Mm -hmm. You mentioned magic that they could do or like prescriptions they'd be given. I remember reading an article about, um, I think it was Tibetan medicine where it's not just the Western sort of like, you know, what we think yeah. of medicine being done, but also this huge emphasis on mantras. Yeah, recitation of mantras. That's, that's a Hindu practice as well as a Buddhist practice. Going back to Hinduism, uh, even to this day, there are temples to the planets. Like, for example, Saturn is Shani. And there are in India temples devoted to plant to one planet or to all nine planets, the Navagraha. When I say nine planets, there's I'm not referring to the outer planets at all. So you have the visible planets, so Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Venus, Mercury, and then the Sun and the Moon are also considered planets. And then in India you have Rahu and Ketu, the ascending and descending nodes of the Moon, um, which are it's, it's an astronomical concept, but we treat them as planets. And so you can carry out these pujas to this day, and you can actually even pay um, a priest to do it online if you want. The puja is a ritual, and it's, it, all, it always has, has an offering. So they would make the appropriate offerings, burn the incense, burn the candles, recite the mantras. So this is still popular today. And usually you would do this, you would talk to your Indian astrologer and you'd ask, okay, so I'm, I'm experiencing all this misfortune this year because of this bad transit by Saturn or Mars or Rahu. And so then the Jyotish astrologer would say, okay, well then you should do this puja. And uh, I have Indian friends who sometimes do this as well. So it's not uncommon at all. And then in, in, in traditional uh, or medieval East Asian culture, Again, you could uh, recite mantras. You can also recite certain um, texts. So in the Buddhist context, you would recite specific texts to specific deities. I don't know exactly why they associated some Buddhist sutras with some planets, but nevertheless, that's what the text says. So you should do Medicine Buddha 
for this planet, you should do this other text for this other planet. And there's also the mantras. And the mantras, it's sort of, you have to understand mantras is, I guess, what would you call them? Incantations, I suppose. So with Tibetan Buddhism, the most common mantra is Om Mani Padme Hum. Om Mani Padme Hum. Om represents the impure level, impure part, and pure part. Now, how to transform impure part into pure? Right. Three impure, transform into pure three. Then money and payment. Money means jewel. Here, jewel meaning altruism, infinite altruism. Then Padma. Padma means wisdom. Altruism and wisdom combine. That represents whom. Whom carry meaning of combination. Altruism and wisdom combine. Through that way, that's the proper way, method to purify three impure in order to become pure three, body, speech, and mind. Clear? <laughs> like that. <laughs> so if you go to Tibet or Nepal or India and you see some Tibetan Buddhists, you'll see them with their rosaries, their malas or their prayer wheels, and they're going, Omani Padme Woman. They'll just recite this a billion times in their lifetime or more. But then there's also the other mantras that are used uh, for the planets, and you find this in Tibetan culture. You also find this traditionally in East Asia, not so much in China anymore. Um, more so in Japan in the esoteric traditions. And so you can recite these mantras as many times as necessary. And it's, the idea is, is that it placates the planet and it will, I guess, help you through this sort of difficult transition. Yeah. I've always wondered about mantras because, okay, a couple of years ago, a mantra about trying to resolve all your past karma, not just like right. the one before, but like many, many before, and the backstory is some guy found out that his next life he's going to be reborn as some sort of insect because of some issue. And so he asks for mercy and he was told, say this mantra, this is your mm -hmm. prescription. And it's given as a gift so that anybody who says it, like, I think it's at sunrise, a certain amount of time for a certain amount of days, they'll mm -hmm. resolve all their past karma as well. I did that as an experiment. I tried it. Namo Bhagavate Charakiya Pratibhisistaya Buddhaya Bhagavate Tadiyata Om Vishudaya Vishudaya Asama Sama Samanta Obasas Paranagati Gahana Sobhava Vishudaya Abhisinchantuma Sugata Vara Vachana Amerita Abhisekai Mahamantra Padaya Ahara Ayusan Dharani Sodaya Sodaya Gagana Vishudaya Usinsa Vijaya Vishudaya Sahasrara Sinsan Sodite Savatatagata Avalokani Saparamita Paripurani Savatatagata Matita Sabumi Pratishtite Savatatagata Hidraya Distana Distita Mahamude Vachakaya Savatana Vishudaya Savatana なあ、パヤドガティパリビシュデ、プラティニバリタヤスデ、サマヤディシテマニマニマハマニタタタタブタコティパリシュデ、ビシュタブデスデジャジャ、ビジャビジャスマラスマラサオブダディシテ、ソ
And also, I have to say, like, this was a couple of years ago, and the piece that came from it, the lasting piece that came from it, mm-hmm. okay, I could attribute it to a lot of things, but at the same time, I also have to say that it's very clunky to explain it away through coincidence or just through like, you know what I mean? Like, oh, this was a placebo effect, considering that I was quite the skeptic. So mm-hmm. this makes me think, okay, if mantras are a huge part of esoteric Buddhism, Hinduism, and just in general, a lot of Eastern magic, like mm-hmm. why? What's so powerful about them? One explanation for the power of mantras is that speech itself is a power. So you have body, speech and mind and so each one of those can compel things in reality you can bend reality to your will usually speech we think of speech as just being able to command other people or to influence other people's will but in the buddhist context as well as the hindu context there's an inherent power to speech and there's a sort of spiritual efficacy to speech as well and if you know the right mantras and you pronounce them properly Um, Although people don't necessarily pronounce them properly all the time. (laughs) But in any case, if you pronounce them also with the right uh, state of mind, then you can influence your own consciousness. And you can also kind of use this as a conduit between yourself and the divinity um, to whom it's directed. So, for example, in East Asia, there's a very long tradition of Ganesh worship. So, you know, the elephant-headed god. A lot of people don't know this, but he survives more in Japan. He's completely extinct in China, but Ganesh was also in China at one point. He came to Buddhism. People think of him as Hindu, but he's actually Pan-Indian. He's like, and he's also even in like Thai Buddhism to this day. So, the, the, the one of the mantras for Ganesh is, Gagashi Omahum Pat. So if you were to pronounce, if you if you pronounce the seed syllables, gah, gah, combined with the other syllables coherently, and you do that enough, then you're actually establishing a connection with the divinity. And then you're also opening up a channel to have their divine influences appear in your life and your consciousness. And then people will say, well, what's the scientific explanation for this? And I would say, well, you're not going to find a scientific explanation because it's religion. And religion and science... I'm not going to say they're incompatible, but religion and science um, will never agree on trying to explain the efficacy of religious rites. I think you should just, if, if you're attracted to this, ideally you can find a teacher, also a community that can support you. And then if it works for you, then it works for you. What more can you say? Um, and I think historically you have so many centuries of people practicing mantra in Tibetan Buddhism and East Asia and Hindus. And to this day, there's millions and millions of people who practice this. Some practice it very seriously. They'll spend years and years in secluded retreat in the mountain reciting mantras. And then there's other people who do it casually. So like in Nepal at Baldanath Stupa, it's this big Buddhist stupa, this big Buddhist monument. And then every every day you have hundreds, thousands of people circumambulating the stupa with their malas and they're reciting usually Omani Padme Hum or some other mantra. And it works for them. So what can you say? It works. So I don't think you'll find a scientific explanation. Although if you read the literature itself from these traditions, the Hindu and Buddhist traditions, they have their own theories of how and why it works. How? And one, well, again, it's it's also the inherent um, symbolism of the vowels, each vowel, each consonant. There's actually a good book by Kukai. So Kukai was the founder of Shingon Buddhism in Japan, and it's the meaning of the syllable hum and so for so it, it breaks down the syllable hum into the sanskrit letters and syllables etc 
and then it explains the sim symbology of each of those. So like H stands for Hetu, which means cause, and then what does that refer to in the Buddhist context, in the esoteric context, etc. And then if you have all this very deep, rich understanding of the mantra and each of its syllables, then um, it has this sort of subtle but profound effect on the consciousness, and then it transforms the person over time. One of the things that I didn't do with the mantras, unfortunately, was I didn't know anything about astrological timing with any of the mm -hmm. mantras. And from the papers that I've read from you, it seems as though that became more and more important. Well, the astrological mantras that, that I've looked at in the literature, it's they're usually carried out when there's a specific reason to do so. So again, going back to a, like a Saturn transit, then you would recite Saturn's mantra um, not just casually every single day, you would do it when there's a specific occasion for it. So if, if Saturn, for example, is transiting your first house and you're worried about this, then you would recite the mantra of Saturn. Uh, same thing with the Hindu practice. As far as I know, you go to the um, you go to the, the, the temple to the planets and you'd get the, the priest there to carry out a ritual for you when there's due cause for it. Buddhism, which everybody in the West associates with like you know like some dude wearing a turtleneck who's talking about my ego died dude you know like that's what they think it, and it's like you know some guy who's like a hardcore atheist is just like buddhism is a philosophy man you know and i don't think a lot of people realize that in the east it's also practiced as a religion there's lots of demons and gods in oh there, there's a massive cosmology in buddhism and it's always been there since the very beginning always. fifth century BCE, um, you know, this is like even before Alexander the Great's time, even before any, you know, Greek influence in India, you have a massive cosmology. There's lots of gods. A lot of this, the ancient Vedic gods that you see in ancient Hinduism, they're the same gods are found in Buddhism. So, for example, gods like Agni, the god of fire, Brahma, Indra, they're all in Buddhism. And even to this day, when you go to Asia, I mean, Thailand, I mean, you have Ganesh, you have Brahma. Brahma is a popular deity too. He has like, you know, several heads and usually he's depicted with several arms. He's the creator god of the cosmos. Now the Buddhists would say that he didn't create the cosmos. The Buddhists would say he was the first being to appear when our present universe um, came to exist. And collectively the universe exists because of all of our collective karma. But he didn't actually create the universe. He's just the first god to appear in this universe when it appears. And so, yeah, and also this idea that Buddhism is supposed to be rational, intellectual, mm -hmm. it's basically an attempt by not just Western intellectuals, but also some intellectuals in Asia to sanitize Buddhism of disagreeable religious elements to create what they think of as a suitable modern religion. What people say, Buddhism is a way of life, not a religion. But in academic studies, we don't say that because... Buddhism qualifies as a religion in the con in every conventional set in every conventional sense and you have a lot of like starting in the 19th century you had some Victorian scholars in England um, they would read the Pali Canon so that's the Canon that's used in Sri Lanka and Thailand and Cambodia today and it's one of the ancient canons as well it's written in an Indic language called Pali it's not the same as Sanskrit but it's close to Sanskrit and they and, and people would ignore the astrology, the gods, the mysticism, the incantations, and they would they would read the parts of the philosophy that they liked, and then they would write about Buddhism as this really rational religion, and the Buddha as a rationalist 
who disregarded superstition, et cetera, et cetera. But that wasn't the case historically. And I've even argued in a paper recently that we need to actually take Buddhist astrology seriously because from the very beginning, Buddhists would schedule their monastic activities according to an astrological lunar calendar. And then over the centuries, they also included the planets as well as other factors of calendrical science and also the seven-day week. And then it, it, Buddhists always believed in astrology, but we don't actually ever talk about Buddhist astrology in like academic Buddhist studies. It, it, the emphasis is usually on the philosophy. Now, Buddhist philosophy is also very important. And if you read works like works by Nagarjuna and Vasubandhu, you have this very profound philosophy, psychology of mind. And it's very enjoyable and it's very profound knowledge. I mean, I've studied Buddhist philosophy for many years. But then if you look what Buddhists also practice, their ritual practice, there's there's gods and demons and, um, you know, the literature, it warns yogis or yoginis. So these are the people who practice meditation out in the wilderness. It warns them. It says, like, you have to be careful about the yakshas and the nagas. And so nagas are, are, are serpent spirits. They're they're usually associated with water. They're water spirits. And so then there's rituals and incantations you can do to either appease them or protect yourself against them. And to this day, again, you go to Nepal, you go to Thailand, and you'll meet these Buddhist monks and nuns who take this very seriously. And, you know, they know who Nagarjuna is. Maybe they've studied Nagarjuna, but the magic and the rituals is just as important to them, if not more important in many cases. And then also, I mean, when I was in India, I talked to an eminent monk who lives in Bodh Gaya, and Bodh Gaya is where the Bodhi tree is. That's where the Buddha became enlightened. It's it's a national heritage site of India. If you ever go to India, you should definitely visit Bodh Gaya. It's a beautiful temple. And he told me he was once up in the mountains and meditating. And he said there was like this fog that covered the mountains. And he heard this beautiful music. And he said these goddesses who were present when the Buddha walked the earth uh, appeared to me. Um, he didn't say there was any revelation or anything. It's, that was just his experience that he related to me. And this sort of thing is not uncommon. I mean, I guess if you're coming from a Western country, you might find this to be rather alarming or surprising. But again, in East Asia and in South Asia, Tibet, this sort of thing is common. People don't object to these experiences because they're not coming from this really hard, rationalist, materialist point of view. And they also, I think to a certain extent, too, they're more willing to accept their experience for what it is. Whereas in the West, and also to some extent, too, in countries like, I think, Korea, China, and Japan, modern, modern countries, we're so, we're so used to trying to rationalize our experience and also sort of apply a materialist lens to it. So we always want to come up with some sort of materialist, materialist explanation of what just happened. So... If you have a vision while you're meditating in the mountains, well, you either fell asleep and you were dreaming or you had a psychotic episode or you're malnourished or something. And then that completely, I think, destroys the informative or instruction, instructive aspect of, of this, vi this vision you might have had. But that's just the nature of our modern education system, hammering in this materialism into it. But I think that's slowly receding as well as time goes on, because there's a lot more people who are open to these ideas. And you can keep your science, but you don't have to, you know, apply scientific materialism to your personal life and your inner life as well. So obviously, if you have a if you have a staph infection, you should take antibiotics, right? Yeah. Right. But then if you're if you're experiencing some sort of like you know long term sorrow or some sort of inner struggle, then you know religious methods work, and that's why people do them, and that's why people have done done this sort of thing for for as long as history 
has recorded uh, human activities. Growing up in an Asian household and, you know, some of my childhood years, I was in Korea for like a year or two. So we'd watch, you know, just like shows that came over from Asia. It was always that these Buddhist monks, they were magical. You watch Japanese anime. Anybody who's yeah, yeah. watched ninja <laughs> shows. Buddhist monks are magical and oftentimes they're assholes. You know what I mean? So very different from most what most people think. They're not just sitting in a temple like meditating and stuff. They do crazy magical shit, you know, and that's what in Asia they were thought of as like Yeah, miracle guy's, workers. Yeah. yeah. They were like meditating on a mountain for twenty years. You don't want to mess with him, you know. He can like change weather, he can when he's meditating, he can float. Kung Fu flicks from mm -hmm. the 80s, like in, from Hong Kong, you would see like, you know, four guys carrying a palanquin with like a princess inside. They weren't like walking over land. They were like flying through the air because they had developed their, their chi enough so that they can do that. And right. so we're just like, oh yeah, well, you know, back then people could do that. That's what we thought. So this was like a very, ma like Buddhism wasn't just about the philosophy. It was definitely a very magical, mystical thing. Yeah, and to this day too. I mean, especially in Thailand, you have the uh, Ajahn, so the the, the monks. They um, are known for um, producing amulets, and so you can uh, acquire an amulet from a monk, and a lot of people will will swear by it that this protects them against all sorts of misfortune, and also, uh, I mean, in, especially in Tibetan Buddhism as well. You know, you have a um, an eminent lama, or you have a yogi and then you can request them to do a ritual for you. And like in Japan, for example, there's all sorts of stories and myths about Kukai, Kobo Daishi, who was the founder of Shingon um, in the ninth century. And so he was able to summon down the rain during a drought, and he was able to perform all sorts of miracles. Now, again, like from a historical point of view, we have to understand that, well, people write myths and then it becomes part of the historical record. And we have to sort of dissect that from the objective historical record as best we can. But that doesn't mean that these myths don't have some sort of value. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Witches & Wine audio experience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting me on Patreon. You can choose between a few membership tiers they're super affordable and flexible. Your membership helps me continue making videos, podcasts, articles, lots of different things about all the sweet witchy stuff. Links are in the show notes. Also, don't forget to go on iTunes and give this a five-star rating. Each five-star rating helps rank this podcast higher in searches so that as many witches can find and enjoy these episodes as well. Until next time, this is Chawan, signing off. <laughs>